are in a time of transformation when everyone involved in healthcare delivery is being asked to better understand and make the most of all the assets that can contribute to better health and better patient outcomes. This now especially encompasses what's possible and beneficial outside of or complementary to the most acute settings. The world of EMS or emergency medical services just happens to be ground zero for some of these remarkable changes to the point that there's now a term for what's going on. I might have been a Johnny-come-lately to this, pre-hospital care. And that's our focus for this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're in our sixth year of coming to you bi-weekly and also for later listening and convenience. You can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. If someone's had a heart attack or a stroke, we tend to think in terms of getting that person to a hospital's emergency department by ambulance as fast as possible. And we still should probably think that way. But now there are interventions and care, and not just of the stabilizing kind, that can be initiated right away on scene that can make a big difference and be continuous with whatever comes next. We've got a stateside and a global view of what's going on, thanks to the guests joining today's WIHI, and I'm going to introduce them in just a moment. But first, as always, here's the wonderful and remarkable John Gothier with us in the studio with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us over the next hour. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out today to help everybody make the most of the program. On the right of our screen is our chat window. If you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. There are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged into the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. And a simple solution to any audio hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. Their number is up on the screen as we speak. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. Now, finally, we're always looking for ways to improve here at IHI and WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take the time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. And a reminder for you Twitter users, users, I should say, we welcome your tweets during or after today's program. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. That way we get even more folks into the conversation. Let me now briefly introduce our guests on pre-hospital care. Dave Williams is on the phone. He's a consultant and researcher with expertise in pre-hospital emergency care systems and improvement science. A former paramedic, he has studied and consulted with emergency medical services systems around the world, and he leads an expert consulting practice called Medic Health. Welcome, Dave. 
Hi, thank you, Madge. Okay, great that you're here. John Studneck is the Quality Improvement Manager for Mecklenburg EMS Agency in North Carolina. He'll tell us all about that. He's responsible for planning, developing, implementing, and overseeing a comprehensive strategy for quality and performance improvement within the EMS Agency. John is also actively involved in the Emergency Medicine Research Program at Carolina's Medical Center, serving as the Director of Pre-Hospital Research. Welcome, John. Glad you're with us. Thanks, Madge. Happy to be here. Terrific. All right, over to Scotland. Kevin Rooney practices intensive care and anesthesia at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley. He is professor of care improvement at the University of the West of Scotland and the national clinical lead on sepsis to Healthcare Improvement Scotland. Hey, Kevin, glad you made it. Hey, Mark, how are you? Okay, terrific. How's the weather in uh, Paisley or Glasgow today? Uh, I live in Glasgow, and the weather is absolutely beautiful. The sun is splitting the heavens, as we see over here. Okay, terrific. That's great. It's a little dull here today, as I have learned that Scots sometimes say, but hopefully the sun will come out as well here in Cambridge. And here in the studio with me is Kedar Mate, an internal medicine physician. He's a vice president at the Institute for Health care improvement, and he oversees the development of innovative system designs to implement high-quality health care, both in the United States and in resource-limited settings abroad. Hi, Kador. Hi, Madge. It's great to be with you. All right. So Kador's going to kick this off. I owe it to all the guests on today's program uh, for getting me up to speed on this topic. Many of you joining today, a thousand of you enrolled in the program, and I see we're getting more uh, folks uh, getting on board as I speak. Um, and you may be very, very well versed in this topic. Um, as you learn some things, though, we do hope you'll tell others about the show as everything will be archived for later listening. So, Kator, let's start with you. Given all the goals, and there are many, of healthcare improvement, including more integrated, coordinated systems, better care for patients, communications across the board, where does EMS fit in? How should we be thinking about the role that EMS can play? And in some ways, the answer is because we've now started calling it pre-hospital care, but help us understand that. Thank you, Madge. And it's great to be with you and great to be on this program. And I'm really thrilled that uh, IHI is uh, starting to look into this program and look into this issue. You, uh, more significantly. Um, you started off at the top of the hour describing assets and how we have to now, in, in our current um, healthcare environment, both here in the United States as well as overseas, really look across uh, our healthcare delivery systems and really beyond the hospital walls to all of the assets that might be present in any uh, healthcare delivery environment. That includes community assets. That includes uh, social assets. That includes uh, post-hospitalization assets, primary care assets, and I think importantly includes uh, the emergency care services that are another set of assets that can help us with improving health care, improving the experience of care, as well as reducing costs. So really I see uh, in the studies that we've been doing here at the IHI as we look into this issue, I see uh, pre-hospital emergency care operating on this continuum of care uh, through the community-based settings into the pre-hospital emergency care environment, into the hospital and beyond. Um, I also want to just say that I think that the uh, pre-hospital emergency care environment, the ambulance care environment, um, is is importantly uh, not just about transportation any longer. I think historically, um, you know, going back 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, the conceptualization of EMS 
uh, and ambulance service providers was as transport, moving patients from their homes, from their communities, and into the places where they could really get care for the first time. That's really changing now, and I think what's happening is uh, care begins when really when a call is placed uh, into an operator who takes the call and can start administering some form of care. It's then continued or picked up by ambulance service providers, and then, of course, continued when those uh, individuals are, uh, are brought to the emergency department or brought into a, a, an acute management setting. Um, because care now begins with the, the phone call or the outreach from the community to a service provider, um, the opportunity for improvement exists across that whole spectrum. So the reason I think that the Institute, uh, the IHI in particular, has become more interested and engaged in this issue is because we see opportunities for bringing the science of improvement uh, to the everything from when a patient first detects signs and symptoms of something happening all the way through to when they come into the hospital and beyond. So it's really applying the science of improvement throughout the spectrum. And just one last comment. Um, I would just add, which is uh, that the ability, what we're seeing these days is an interest in improving value throughout the system. And I think the ability to interact with the pre-hospital emergency care environment allows us to start care earlier, which can reduce downstream impacts uh, of uh, uh, trauma, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, on patients, improving patient out- potentially improving patient outcomes, reducing lengths of stay, reducing need for ICU admission, et cetera. So the opportunity to improve overall value value um, if we focus on improving the performance um, and quality in the pre-hospital environment is significant. All right. Thanks so much, Kedar, uh, for that context and overview. That really helps set the stage now for Dave Williams. Uh, Dave um, has a tremendous uh, passion uh, for this area and has just been a tremendous help in trying to, in shaping uh, today's program. So, Dave, talk about some of that passion, where it comes from, and uh, drill down now a little more more for us about some of the changes that are taking place um, with pre-hospital care in the U.S. Um, Kadar alluded to different kinds of emergency situations, but uh, you can even get maybe a little more specific. Thanks. Well, thanks, Madge. No, I, I think Kadar did a fabulous job of, of really framing some of the, the current thinking, and, and uh, you know, a lot of my passion stems from the fact that, uh, that uh, pre-hospital care was my entry into um, health care. Uh, I have a slide where I actually have a picture of me in the wild. Uh, and I know Kevin is often surprised that I actually was a paramedic at one point and, and uh, started when I, uh, like many people, uh, as a volunteer when I was in, in uh, high school uh, and uh, worked in cities uh, across the U.S. Uh, but one of the things that was um, part, uh, a little bit unusual for me is that I also studied ambulance systems and, and uh, studied them academically and, and as a consultant. And there's a lot to appreciate. So Kadar mentioned, for example, that um, that the history of uh, ambulance services is uh, is pretty brief. And, and prior to the 1960s, um, there was a dramatic variation in terms of what ambulances meant and what service was. And some of what I'm going to describe is a little bit uh, U.S.-centric, but there, there are uh, parallels uh, globally as well in terms of formation. Dave, but, uh, um, I'm, cases, I'm only going to jump in really quickly just to make sure you may be sort of going on and off mic just a little bit and uh, just want to make sure you can kind of position that thing so we don't lose anything you say. Right. I thought it's actually more likely to do with bandwidth because I, I've got it uh, set right in front of me. But uh, okay. thank you for that. So, <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, All right. We just so don't want to lose you. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So, so prior to 1960, uh, 
uh, mid '60s, there was a blend of folks that were involved in uh, ambulance work, and in, in many places that was actually uh, funeral homes because they had vehicles designed to be able to transport bodies. Um, in other cases, like this example, uh, they were done by private services. But um, the idea was more around transport. As a matter of fact, even to this day, if you really want to uh, annoy an ambulance uh, care practitioner or paramedic, you can call them an ambulance driver um, because that was the way that people thought about um, folks as a transport entity. Uh, but then something interesting happened in the mid-60s. Um, there was a report that came out um, that uh, was uh, looking at uh, death and disability, uh, specifically around traumatic injury in, in the States. And, and one of the things that became very obvious in this report was that and, uh, the, your chances of survival of a traumatic event uh, in uh, the out-of-hospital setting um, was horrible, uh, and that we didn't have emergency care and specifically trauma systems um, that could support and take care of people in the field and then bring them uh, rapidly to places where um, surgical intervention and other other care can be provided. One of the things that was described in this report is that your chances of survival being shot in the uh, in Vietnam uh, were better than if you were shot on uh, City Street. Uh, and so this report resulted in a significant amount of funding um, over about an eight to ten year period, which um, infused uh, uh, money into the American system and looked at demonstration projects trying to figure out what were the uh, the, the things that could be uh, built to create emergency care systems that involved training, that involved system design, a lot of thinking. At the same time that this happened, there was also an interesting um, pop culture event uh, that all changed the way that we think about ambulance services, and that was uh, these guys. Uh, a show by the name of Emergency, which was actually based on um, a paramedic program in, in Los Angeles County, uh, surrounding uh, Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, uh, for the first time presented these guys who, uh, from a fire department, would go out and provide advanced pre-hospital care as an extension of the emergency department in the field. And it raised a consciousness to the public that um, there was this possibility of these advanced care practitioners in the field. And uh, as a matter of fact, a number of my colleagues um, who uh, are baby boomers and late generation Xers, uh, many of them actually decided to become paramedics because of their experience of watching this show. And this show uh, transformed the way that we started to think about the potential. And uh, the early uh, focus on care really aimed at two areas that, that um, out-of-hospital care uh, believed that there was a potential that we could make a difference. And one was out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest survival, and the second was, was trauma. And so um, these became the primary initial focus. And, and as funding was flooding in, systems were beginning to um, become more advanced, more sophisticated, um, and uh, come to what we know today. And so on the next slide, you'll you know there's a picture of, of an image that, that's very um, normal to us. Where, uh, this particular image is of the fire department, New York ambulance on 9-11. Um, and now we have a, a belief or a recognition that there's a much more advanced, sophisticated system that exists. And there is. Uh, the challenge, though, is that there's a lot of variation um, uh, throughout the world, and especially within the United States. Uh, and while it has reached a degree of sophistication, there's also a number of things that are, that are still there uh, with opportunity to evolve and change. And actually, uh, this report that came out uh, from the Institute of Medicine, which was one of three reports looking at emergency care in America, 
uh, described this uh, this tension point of where EMS is today, which is at a center point between public health, uh, health care, and public safety. And in this report, it recommended a number of different um, areas in which uh, there was opportunity for ambulance service and pre-hospital emergency care um, to become uh, more integrated within the greater healthcare system, to become more evidence-based, to focus on care pathways that it could make a big difference in, and and uh, look at reliability. And at, as this report came out, we started to then um, have some greater attention paid uh, to where are those opportunities. And so, uh, looking at at data from the 911 calls that come in in, in uh, a few cities in the United States, you can um, see that almost half, uh, 40 to 50 percent of, of the calls that are received fall in some significant um, buckets of care, including STEMI care, um, stroke care, trauma care, um, uh, sudden cardiac arrest. And in each of these buckets of care, there's, there's emerging evidence that uh, says that uh, ambulance services and uh, pre-hospital care providers have an ability or an opportunity to identify, begin treatment, begin notification, and expedite transport uh, to in- initiate uh, the life-saving care in some significant care areas. Um, and uh, uh, there's uh, been more and more uh, work around these areas. It's also the areas that we're focusing in on IHI, and I'm excited to be able to transition to some of my colleagues around the world who can share some, some firsthand experience working in those areas. Okay, thank you so much. Nice overview, nice history, uh, Dave. And uh, I think we had one more kind of image here. Uh, we're going to get a little bit ahead of ourselves here because we're going to kind of, I think John Studnick now is going to fill in uh, really talking about some of these really acute situations. But um, it, Dave and, and others can attest to the fact that there's some very interesting things happening in the community as well, uh, thinking about the role of EMS and EMT. I want to acknowledge, uh, Dave, you were alluding to learning from and colleagues around the world, and we do have kind of a nice international audience, as I can see so far on the chat. So welcome, all of you. All right, we're uh, now going to turn to John Studneck, and from what I understand, what's going on under the auspices of the Mecklenburg EMS Agency in North Carolina, it really is um, nothing short of blazing a lot of these new trails with respect to interventions on the scene, particularly related to cardiac arrest uh, and other really um, sudden and life-threatening situations. So tell us about that, and also take us back to Kadar's comment that improvement methodology has been a big part of uh, what one sees today uh, in with the Mecklenburg program. Thanks, John. Thanks, Madge. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to everybody today. So uh, to start uh, my little piece, I'd first like to do a brief introduction about uh, the agency I work for and place a little bit of context around uh, the type of health care that we provide and um, what we're doing. And so the Mecklenburg EMS Agency is a paramedic service in Charlotte uh, and Mecklenburg County. So Charlotte is the city, Mecklenburg County uh, is the uh, area surrounding, so we're responsible for that entire area. We're a government agency, uh, but interestingly uh, and slightly different uh, from uh, state to state, we're managed by the local health care system. So a government agency, but managed by two uh, uh, competing health care agencies within the county. 
So to, uh, you know, I like to frame this for uh, our in-hospital uh, audience a little bit. If you think about our emergency department, quote-unquote, uh, you know, we're, we have 70 beds or ambulances, and we have that for about a million people and 523 square miles. Uh, so we have a large service area, uh, and we have a capacity issue, right? We only have uh, 70 ambulances, of which at peak 40 or 50 are around on the street at any given point in time during the day to serve that million people. About 500 employees, uh, and last year we transported about 96,000 patients to the hospital uh, in one of our ambulances. So today there's two key pieces to what I feel as uh, our success uh, in EMS in the improvement realm and in the healthcare realm uh, that I'd like to really speak about. And I think those two pieces of success uh, that we've drawn from work uh, from the IHI uh, talk about understanding our work as a series of linked processes that extend from the out-of-hospital system and into the hospital, and then using improvement methodology, such as small-scale testing or a disciplined approach to change, um, and using that to uh, produce benefits for our patients. So if we start about start talking about that first key piece of success, uh, which is understanding that EMS is a system, and inherent in any system is a series of linked processes, and those linkages extend not just from uh, the pre-hospital environment, but through the hospital environment. And so what I'd like to use for an example is uh, ST elevation myocardial infarction care, STEMI care, in our community. Now, several years ago, uh, our medical control board uh, that provides medical direction for our EMS agency in conjunction with the hospital cardiologist groups came up with a goal for our patients who were having that specific type of heart attack that we wanted them to have reperfusion of their culprit artery in less than 90 minutes. And now that 90 minutes is a relative standard term um, throughout the uh, industry, but they wanted it from less than 90 minutes from 911 one phone pickup, and often that benchmark starts either at hospital arrival or first medical contact, but we push that clock back to 911 pickup uh, because we have telecommunicators that answer the phone and can start giving advice uh, to patients and providing some level of medical care very early on in the process. And so in order to meet this goal, we really had to deconstruct the system that was STEMI care in our agency, and to do that, the first thing we, we needed to understand was when we understand the process pieces of our system, how are we performing? And so we were able to think about all of the pieces of STEMI care. So you have to respond to the scene. When you respond to the scene, a paramedic has to do an assessment and know to do a 12-lead ECG. How long does that take? How long do they stay on scene before they start transporting the patient to the hospital? Once they're transporting or beforehand, does a paramedic call ahead to the hospital and pre-alert the cath lab and tell them that they have a patient, that they have uh, a suspected STEMI? Uh, and then does the hospital on their part, do they understand and recognize that alert, and do they put their processes into place so that when the paramedic and the patient arrive at the hospital, that there's a seamless transition of care and the patient goes to the cath lab? 
if you understand these process pieces and understand how they fit together and start erasing that wall between pre-hospital and in-hospital care, you can start to see some really uh, good improvement uh, in so much that over the last uh, two years uh, plus, our 911 to lesion treatment time in Mecklenburg County has averaged 80 minutes uh, from phone pickup to um, lesion treatment. And we think those are outstanding results due to understanding how our system performs uh, and seeing those linkages in the processes of our system. So the second example I'd like to talk about, about how improvement methodology can really impact patient care, is uh, in the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest realm. And so very specifically, what we like to talk about are those patients that meet the Utstein criteria, those patients that suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that is a ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. It's a witnessed cardiac arrest, and it's of cardiac etiology. And so if we think about these patients, these are the patients that have the highest opportunity, uh, the highest degree of success for resuscitation. And so a little bit of history uh, at Medic, we've focused on cardiac arrest, but our focus had been a very much a kitchen sink approach to cardiac arrest care, reading what the state of the science is and then trying to implement uh, all of these strategies all at one time and somewhat in a cluttered fashion. Now, what we began to realize is that the state of the science uh, and understanding um, what is best practice is very important to building a strong foundation uh, within your system, but the implementation of that science is almost just as important. Uh, in fact, if you don't have methodologies in order to test uh, the science in your system, we feel that it's likely that you'll fail to fully be able to implement that science. So when we, in about uh, mid-2012, started using small-scale testing in our cardiac arrest to implement uh, things such as a focused, arrest, a focused approach to cardiac arrest, um, and uh, understanding how to track and control uh, quality chest compressions, we began to see um, uh, improvements uh, in our outcome measures in survival to hospital discharge. Uh, and now we had tried uh, varying approaches, and we'd you know, been around 30%, 32 33% survival to hospital discharge. But after taking lessons from IHI and others regarding improvement methodology and doing that small-scale testing, we began to see our cardiac arrest survival rate uh, increase. And in fact, um, last fiscal year, we had a cardiac arrest survival rate that topped out about 51%. And we saw um, a shift in our performance in cardiac arrest survival. And we credit a lot of that um, to being able to systematically implement uh, uh, the state of the science in cardiac arrest using improvement methodology. And I think those two pieces, understanding your system and how you're linked together as healthcare providers and then using improvement methodology can really help move EMS forward uh, as a profession and as healthcare providers. Okay. Thank you so much, John. Great examples. Um, and um, I think if anybody has any particular questions about the run charts, 
that John has shared, let us know. Of course, you can download those as well. Uh, interesting comments on the chat as well. We always welcome the fact that you folks start talking with one another. Don't mind us. We're just here. <laughs> We're just here in the studio on the phone. So you're a great audience and uh, clearly uh, thinking aloud here. All right, Kevin, here we are. Um, you, you have another interesting piece of the story in terms of kind of early warning uh, issues and how to become more attuned to that where seconds and minutes can also make a huge difference in terms of deterioration. So welcome and tell us what's been going on uh, in Scotland. Thanks. Okay, uh, thank you, Madge. Well, uh, the first thing I'd like to say is I'd just like to echo what both Kedar and Dave have said that is that uh, your ambulance service is more than just patient transport. Uh, a quick background to the, to the Scottish Ambulance Service. Well, it's a uh, part of the National Health Service in the UK, uh, and it's a national service whose aim is to deliver the best patient care whenever and wherever it's needed. Uh, due to the geography of Scotland, uh, we've got a mixture of inner-city urban and uh, remote and rural areas, so our pre-hostel health care has to be able to adapt to both settings. Last year, the, the Scottish Ambulance Service uh, had around about 850,000 calls and responded to more than 650,000 incidents, with a national average response time of around six and a half minutes. I'm sure everyone on the WIHI will agree that only a small proportion of calls are immediately life-threatening, and not everyone needs immediate transportation to the ED. So some of the things that pre-hospital care needs to look at is new ways to ensure patients receive appropriate, timely, and safe care through the development of alternative care pathways. So one example of that would be what the Scottish Ambulance Service has done is to uh, continue to safely treat a significant number of patients at the scene last year, which was uh, almost 80,000 patients, reducing inappropriate attendances. Uh, and there was a 12% reduction in the number of patients over 65 being taken to, hall, to hospital for a fault when there was no injury. So, but, but, but I'm a critical care physician uh, and I'm the national lead, uh, lead for sepsis. And over the course of the last two years in, in, in Scotland, we've been delivering a programme to improve outcomes from sepsis. And what I've now uh, learned is uh, I'm a firm believer in the old adage, if you build it, they will come. Because we found with the sepsis programme, we suddenly found it to spreading to the pre-hospital setting as well as, as, well as to OBGYN and paediatrics. So people were chatting in my door to say we want involved. But pre-hospital sepsis care, screening and treatment is eminently sensible match. We know from studies from the UK and the US that anything between 40 and 80% of patients with sepsis are transported to hospital by ambulance. And we also know that for every hour of delay in antibiotics for patients with septic shock, your mortality can increase by 7.6%. So the earlier we recognise and treat sepsis either in hospital or ideally pre-hospital, the better. The studies done from the uh, United States and from the UK that show that paramedic crew can identify sepsis in between 43 and 75% of patients with the condition. Initial response is, well, that's not good. But when you compare it to physicians in hospital, it's around about the same. And actually, considering the minimal amount of information available in the pre-hospital setting and the lack of pattern recognition with sepsis, this is very, very good. 
So what we need to do, we need to become more reliable, identifying the citation. And one of the ways that this can be done is through the use of an early warning scoring system and then sets of screening. In the UK, we have a national early warning scoring system. It's a well-validated tool developed by the Royal College of Physicians in London to help you identify sick patients and enable a more timely response and assessment of the acutely ill patient. It stratifies your patients into low, medium or high-risk categories. Can you go back to the news slide, actually? The, uh, to see it. This one, oh, yes, one. Yep. yes okay. sorry. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's based on observed heart rate, respiratory rate, systolic blood pressure, arterial oxygen saturation, temperature and conscious level. And they also provide an additional weighting uh, if the patient is receiving oxygen. So if you have a low aggregate score, uh, but you have a high, uh, but high score in one single observation, you can still be classified as a medium risk. Within the hospital, it's a good predictor of mortality and deterioration of it. However, it's due to the, as a prognostic indicator in the hospital setting was locked and tested. At the recent International Conference on Emergency Medicine in Hong Kong, we presented data that showed an elevated early warning scoring system among pre-hospital patients is associated with increased levels of adverse outcome at the, the high-risk group and the medium-risk group as well. So what we're testing with the Scottish Annual Service, that if your news is elevated, sepsis screening is undertaken where the paramedic crew look for two or more modified SIRS criteria. Just go to the next slide. Okay. The paramedic crew uh, look for a heart rate greater than 90, respiratory rate greater than 20, a higher low temperature, altered mental status, or hyperglycemia in the absence of diabetes, and the presence of known or suspected infection. If the patient then screens positive for sepsis, then sepsis treatment can be commenced earlier and a pre-alert call issued to the hospital. The calculation of early warning scoring system uh, and sepsis screening prior to transfer to hospital facilitates this pre-alert call and allows quicker triage to appropriate high dependency areas. And with this, error recognition and treatment of the deteriorating patient. More and more evidence is now being seen from randomised controlled trials that to really improve outcomes from sepsis, we need to screen for it as part of the surviving sepsis recommendations. And we need to deliver some simple life-saving interventions. In the UK, we call these the sepsis six, where we take three things and we give three. We deliver oxygen to get saturations of 94 to 98%. We take blood cultures and consider source control. We give IV antibiotics according to protocol. And we start IV fluid resuscitation with a minimum of 500 mils, eh, up to 30 mils per kilo in the we then check a lactate and commence fluid balance measurement. And we do all six of these things within the hour. Certainly within the pre-hospital setting, four or even five of these simple interventions can easily be delivered by paramedics. Okay. Wow. Kevin, I want to really thank you. We had a, just a, a moment or two there with a little bobble of the sound, um, but you're there, and anyone who seemed to have drifted away came back as well, including Wales, I believe. All of Wales has returned. But I want to, I want to really thank you also for sharing some of these tools. I, I, I hope, I, I don't think I probably have to tell this audience, this stuff is really groundbreaking uh, in terms of um, new 
new tools, resources, awareness, that kind of thing. And I think what I'll do before we turn uh, to chat, I'm going to swing back uh, just for a quick moment here to Kadar, uh, now that we've sort of heard from everyone about um, just what we've heard and even a couple of the themes uh, that have popped up even already on chat. Well, thank you, Madge. And, you know, there's a number of really, um, I think, important themes that are coming out in the chat as I've been uh, reading it here. Um, let me let me pick up on a couple of things that I think uh, some of our other, uh, that John talked about, that Kevin spoke about, um, and that Dave spoke about, as well as what's in the chat. The, the first thing I, I think to, to talk about here is I think there's an acknowledgement um, about the the opportunity for improvement and sort of managing the, the pre-hospital emergency care environment as a system and as a link system to a number of other important downstream uh, and upstream systems in the community and in the hospital or in whatever uh, further care setting might be present. I think the other thing that's uh, come out a lot in the chat, and we've uh, briefly touched on it, uh, is this notion of community paramedicine. It's kind of come up. There's a number of uh, very interesting and rich comments um, in the chat about uh, this notion of using uh, uh, the EMS to its uh, full potential. EMS is out there in the community. It's an extension and uh, an, a way to reach people in their homes and in their social and, and community environments uh, that, you know, if you stuck to the four walls of the hospital, it would be very difficult to do. And so I think there is a increasing recognition of this ability to kind of extend and reach out and activate EMS to deliver care in the community in a variety of different ways. The chat is full of really innovative and interesting ideas about how to do that. And I actually think this is an area of incredible innovation and uh, further thinking. Uh, I just want to highlight a couple of, very quickly, a couple of opportunities in that community kind of paramedicine uh, space. Uh, the first is around uh, interacting with patients who are particularly vulnerable, uh, frail elderly patients, uh, patients who have uh, uh, socioeconomic vulnerability, uh, individuals who are particularly medically or socially frail. And those individuals are often difficult for uh, institutional healthcare delivery systems to reach uh, well. And that's a major opportunity for EMS providers to really interact and engage. Um, I think there's also a comment about sort of low acuity uh, 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 problems clogging our emergency departments and our care delivery systems. There was a comment from Florida about this uh, somewhere in the chat. Uh, I remember seeing it come across. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I think that notion of how can EMS potentially treat and discharge people in the field uh, without requiring to, them to be transported to an emergency room or transporting them to an appropriate care delivery environment, maybe a primary care practice rather than a hospital emergency department, is, I think, a really important new development in how we're thinking about this. And then on the other end of the spectrum, as hospitals increasingly focus on preventing readmissions and and and, and providing better continuous care in the community, uh, there's a, a real focus on utilizing EMS, and there's comments again in the chat about this, about utilizing uh, medics, EMS paramedics, to potentially provide services in the community that uh, have otherwise not been provided in the, in, in the past. And I think that's a, those are some very important ways of thinking about uh, and where I'm seeing the, the greatest innovation at this point in time in, in some of this work. Thanks, Kadar. <clears throat> Excuse me. And several people have also commented about the potential here with mental health crises. Uh, another area, I think, maybe uh, right before innovation. So thanks for those comments as well. All right. It looks like uh, everybody 
more or less on this program understands the chat. Uh, John, you want to just make any quick reminders for folks? Yep, just a quick reminder. If you're going to ask a question or comment of our panelists, uh, to uh, make sure you send your messages to all participants in the chat field. All right. Thanks, John. I think, Dave, I'm going to swing back to you, and then maybe even John can fill in a little bit. Uh, a couple people are asking about, so what about these interactions with the hospital emergency department, the staff, the integration? Some people have said it's working. Some people have said we don't talk to each other <laughs> to drop off and thank you very much. Uh, what do you see going on uh, either in, in, just in the U.S. or even uh, globally on that? And maybe Kevin can help too. Thanks, Dave. Are you there, Dave? I hope we didn't lose Dave. Oops, there he is. He was muted. Hi, Dave. Muted. <laughs> so, hey, um, that's, a, that's a great question. And actually, I, the honest answer is it varies um, from community to community. Uh, in my experience, um, there are some communities that I have um, either been a practitioner in or consulted in where there are fabulous um, relationships and communication uh, and, and pathways um, that occur between the pre-hospital and out-of-hospital setting. And then there are others that are completely silent um, and where there's little or no interaction. And uh, much of that is rooted in, in how the system developed over time as both emergency care in hospital and emergency care in the pre-hospital environment um, uh, transformed. Um, I think there are, uh, in addition, there are some specific areas, and, and John may be able to speak very directly to this, and, and, and Kevin as well, where when there was recognition that there was a clinical care pathway um, that, had, that the, the value stream was shared, um, and the only way to accomplish it was uh, to, to collaborate and connect, um, there have been... Uh, Better examples of coordination uh, and, uh, and and sh- kind of shared ownership and taking care of that patient. Um, in other areas where there, that connection has not been seen yet, uh, that may not be as evident. And, and John can probably uh, speak to that better from his experience with STEMI and and uh, right. in Charlotte. Thanks so much, Dave. So, John, is that right? Does it need to be framed as a care pathway, a particular problem where everybody is, you know, kind of got a clock run, excuse me, running in certain of these areas? Uh, and then Kevin, of course, talking about uh, all these, you know, very dangerous situations where uh, deterioration uh, may be missed um, without uh, some of the robust work that's going on. So does it need to be framed that way, John? No, I, uh, I think that's a good question, and I think initially the successes that we've seen in improving care uh, have been led by those care pathways in which we have a well-defined outcome uh, and, the, for lack of a better term, a clock in which everybody is being measured to the same standard. And so when you have those, when you have that well-defined outcome and you have um, some external pressure uh, applied, uh, whether uh, measurement or criteria or regulation, uh, then it's, uh, it becomes easier to see the benefit uh, of a team Team and the and you see the benefit of the linkages of your processes and how you need to start erasing what might be imaginary walls between your uh, care systems and I think the STEMI example is a really good example of that when both the cardiologists the emergency physicians and the EMS system realize that they're all being measured on the same clock uh, and there is a well-defined outcome uh, then the teamwork becomes much more innate uh, and so when you start Start thinking about other 
uh, care pathways, it's not so much, I think, that we need to frame out the pathway, is we need to better understand what is the outcome that we're aiming to achieve, and does that outcome align with all of the individuals who are responsible uh, for the care of that particular patient? And when we can find that alignment, um, and then I think we can all aim at solutions that will best benefit that patient to achieve those outcomes. Just a, I wanted to jump in on this. This is Kate Armate, um, and, and say one other thing, because I think, John, you're absolutely right, that where there's a clear outcome, two ingredients that really matter are a clear outcome and a clock. I think you mentioned those two. That's, I think, absolutely uh, true and critical. And there's another, I think, that might be important here, and we're seeing this a little bit internationally. We're seeing uh, that organizations that have um, more of an integrated structural setup and financing setup to EMS and hospital care have the, the boundary uh, blurs or becomes uh, less relevant um, over time. So, for example, if a hospital service act, or hospital actually owns its ambulance service, uh, as we're seeing in some countries in the world and even some institutions in the United States, uh, that there is a uh, – the value stream is clearer between pre-hospital emergency care and what happens in the hospital, that the opportunity to improve care along the pathway um, is highlighted in that system. That's not universally true, of course, uh, but where that is available, where that is present, the uh, structural and financial levers are uh, potentially available uh, in addition to the outcome and clock that can uh, encourage a systematic a systems view um, to, to improve performance. Kevin, thank you, Kedar. Kevin, uh, why don't you comment on that? Because you may perhaps have been implied here uh, in terms of a more overall um, system less siloed, and I'm wondering if that is how you would characterize um, what's possible with NHS Scotland, and we do have a number of people from some other countries uh, elsewhere in the UK and, and several other countries uh, talking about this today, and I'm just wondering what you, you have found in terms of um, uh, what's typical. Well, well, any illness is, is, is a disease continuum, so it starts not. It starts off with a presenting complaint, and then there's a, the course of illness. The earlier we can uh, identify patients who are sick and treat them, the better. So basically, it's incumbent upon us now to start treating patients in the pre-hospital setting when we identify them, when we know them that for. Uh, diseases like stroke, for STEMI, and for sepsis, that, that minutes matter. So, as if you're a patient, you you want treated the minute the paramedic arrives. You you're not you you're not phoning them just for uh, someone to to transport you to hospital. You're phoning them to start the clock, then start the clock of treatment. So, uh, and we know from studies been done that actually paramedics are as good uh, as as some physicians at identifying certain disease. Processes with the limited amount of information they have at the time. So, and again, these patients will get senior review by an ED attending or consultant on admission to hospital. Okay. So, I, I think it's it's so important that you know patients don't just say I've got a chest infection. I want to see a pulmonologist. They say I've got a chest infection or I've got sepsis, and I want good care that's relevant to me and my family from the minute. I interact with healthcare, and that is pre-hospital care. Okay, thanks. I have kind of the flip sides of of one question, which is, um, or related, which is training and skills needed 
you know, as we move forward in this arena uh, and who's doing it? And uh, is it pretty much now going along with the training? Is training paralleling uh, the kind of progress we're talking about? And who's maybe having some trouble with some of this expansion and and pre-hospital? And uh, maybe, Dave, I'll start with you and others can jump in. Sure, Mitch. Well, so the training is, is an interesting um, question, and ac- actually, this is an area that, that varies uh, significantly uh, with EMS systems around the world. Um, in the states, uh, there has been most of the training was designed very early on in the formation of EMTs and paramedics in, in the '60s and '70s. Uh, it is very uh, limited in scope and has heavy emphasis on on uh, life-threatening emergencies like cardiac arrest and trauma. Uh, and uh, sadly. trying to kind of weave uh, my question, kind of uh, capturing even some of, the, of what's going on here. As far as what you, what's going on uh, in with Mecklenburg, would you say it's a model for what needs to happen in terms of collaboration, integration, um, and um, is everything also working <laughs> seamlessly? Uh, is everybody on board who needs to be on board? So I think the safe way to answer that question, Madge, <laughs> is to say that I think we're a model, right? Um, and so it's about um, understanding that uh, healthcare EMS in general is is really in this innovation space right now, trying to understand how do we best apply the practices 
that we know to be good science. And there are several different models in which you can be successful. And I think what you have to be able to do as a leader in healthcare, a leader in an EMS agency, is to be able to take the critical view of your organization and understand where are you placed in your market, where are you placed uh, in healthcare, uh, in your locale, and then understand how am I going to move myself into the position uh, that best puts us in a place to take care of our patients uh, and to continue to do so into the future with that collaboration. And I think what we've worked here uh, in Charlotte and Mecklenburg County with our healthcare partners has been very successful, bringing them to the table um, to uh, uh, be participants. Now, is that the only model that will work? Clearly not. Clearly there are other models that will be successful, um, but it's independent upon the leader in those organizations and agencies to do that work to understand where they are. And a couple of questions that, you know, I ask uh, individuals that, you know, work in other locales, when we show our cardiac arrest uh, survival data, when we look at our STEMI um, data, um, you know, those are easy things we think conceptually to start to measure. And so in your community as a healthcare provider, uh, whether you be an emergency room physician, uh, an internist, a paramedic, a nurse, in your community, do you know what your 911 to PCI time is? Do you know what your survival to hospital discharge is? As a healthcare provider in that in your community, should you know that information? And how should you find it? And how will understanding that help bridge those gaps and take down some of those walls so that um, you can build a stronger system? John, I think those are great questions, and I invite folks on the chat and everyone who's joined us, tell us, do you know? Do you know some of that information that John uh, is is describing? Uh, are there opportunities for you to share that information? I'm going to have John Gothier here uh, make a mention of some interesting things coming up, and while he's maybe uh, sharing this, uh, we'd love to know, Are you? do you have that awareness that John uh, Studnick is talking about? John Gothier. All right. Thanks, Madge. Well, roadblocks to improvement require innovation, the translation of new concepts into actionable ideas. Next week at IHI, we'll welcome 40 quality improvers for IHI's Summer Immersion Program, where they'll take part in IHI's first innovation relay. Each leg of the relay will focus on a fundamental aspect of IHI's innovation strategy, and the teams will work to pioneer answers to persistent problems in healthcare. They'll design testable solutions and explore innovative approaches to challenges in health and healthcare. They need your help. On Wednesday, July 30th, we'll be hosting a Twitter chat to help our teams explore the way quality improvers can tackle the burden on frontline physicians and staff, as well as the challenges of social determinants of health. Want to join? Jump on Twitter next Wednesday, July 30th at 1 o'clock Eastern, and follow along at hashtag Innovation Rally, and be sure to follow at the IHI on Twitter for updates on the Innovation Relay all week long. All right. Thank you very much, John. Scott uh, has weighed in here and uh, brought up uh, one of the elephants in the room. Do we do we have the policies and the reimbursement and the payment right uh, kind of to underscore and to help move this along? I don't know. Do I dare pick on you, Kadar, to start that one? <laughs> it's uh, Scott. Uh, I'm oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, no, actually, that, that's a great point because I think one thing that's really challenging when you think about EMS systems is 
that dates back to our history. So ambulance systems in, this, in the United States um, were designed to transport patients uh, primarily. So the funding model that currently exists uh, from a reimbursement standpoint is they are paid for the transport of a patient who requires emergency services to an emergency department. So when you see in the chat, for example, people talking about alternative modes of transport, um, those are not funded currently through uh, insurance or through uh, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. In other countries that have um, uh, socialized systems like the NHS, uh, that that's different. Uh, they're they're funded through their tax dollars and through their national health system. Uh, but here, that's a huge obstacle. So um, when um, there are some systems that function completely off of their medical billing, there are other systems that have a blend, like my hometown here in Austin, Texas, where the community pays a significant tax subsidy to offset um, the cost of the system and to um, uh, to uh, uh, have companion funding with with what is done from medical billing. Um, but that's a real obstacle to transformation in, in the U.S. system until we uh, change to having the payment uh, connected with the care delivery and recognize that that care delivery also includes things that are not emergent or do not need to be transported, uh, there will be some challenges with evolving the American system. Okay. Thank you very much. Kedar. Just to, to build on that comment from Dave, and I just want to uh, really agree with uh, with Scott's comment here. I think that's absolutely the case. And as Dave is saying, uh, you know, we have a fragmented system. Uh, we all know that. Um, and in fact, I think the financing and structural way in which EMS operations is structured, uh, really uh, historically in the financing for it, has in fact led to the system that we currently have. So I think one really important consideration is is what what is our aim for EMS moving forward? I think historically the aim for EMS has been about transport. The conceptualization has been about transport, bringing us back to the beginning of the show. But the aim is changing. We're moving towards uh, a true value-based system. We're moving towards uh, a shared accountability between communities and healthcare for the health of populations. We're moving towards the triple aim, um, I think. Uh, not everywhere, but in some places. And as a result of that, if the aim is changing, then the mechanisms need to change. The, the community paramedicine becomes a sensible thing to do. And we need appropriate measures. Uh, there's another comment here from Catherine about national level reporting and measurement. Um, and I think that we need to evolve a set of measures now that meet this new aim of uh, a shared uh, system and a sense of system between pre-hospital emergency care, in-hospital care, post-hospital care. Okay, Kedar. Listen, we're going to quickly go around the horn and uh, make some quick comments. Um, I think we can learn, continue to learn from everyone on this program today, and each individual's bio slide includes their email address. Um, If you've got some additional questions or want to continue to do some networking, you've done some amazing networking with one another. I can barely keep up with it. Uh, So, uh, but that's fantastic in terms of sharing resources and knowledge. Kevin, let me turn to you. How can we and how will we continue to learn from what is going on uh, in in Scotland? What space should we be watching? The early warning area, uh, perhaps most of all other areas? Thanks. Are you there? Presentation about the early warning score. Uh, I would 
keep, keep in contact with uh, through, through IHI with the, the Scottish Pro- Safety Program, uh, the, the, their website, uh, which escapes me at the moment, but just Google Scottish Patient Safety Program. Okay. And again, the Scottish Ambulance Service uh, has a very, very good website, highlights uh, some of the great work that they've been doing uh, around things like cardiac arrest as well. So if you go to Scottish Ambulance Service, uh, they would they would be able to provide some information of that and the College of Emergency Medicine in the United Kingdom as well. Okay. Kevin, thank you very much for your contribution. You shared a lot of really interesting uh, ideas. I'm sure we could have had a program on early warning scores and deterioration in sepsis unto itself. So uh, perhaps we'll swing back that way. Thank you for your time. John, uh, any final thoughts from you? Um, kind of brief at this point, but we really appreciate your contribution today. Uh, thank you very much, Madge. I appreciate it myself. The one thing I would leave with is pre-hospital care workers are a very motivated group of individuals. And as a community, as a healthcare profession, if we can understand what outcomes we want to aim at uh, and we can be clear and set direction and aims, then I have a great deal of confidence that we will be successful in targeting those uh, and uh, achieving them. And I think that uh, the work that we've done here, the work we see with Kevin's group and Dave, uh, clearly illustrate uh, the potential uh, for that. All right. Thank you so much, John. Dave, uh, quick comment. Thanks, Madge. And a pleasure to be uh, amongst all these folks that are talking about hospital care, and I'm, I'm excited to have it be uh, shared with a broader audience. Um, I echo um, uh, Dr. Sednick's comment that uh, uh, the pre-hospital care environment and the professionals within that space in the U.S. and internationally are very passionate uh, folks that are very interested in wanting to do the best care in their community and, and be uh, uh, community practitioners. Um, I think that there are some huge opportunities to improve the reliability of the areas that we know that they can make a big difference in emergency care. And I also think there's some emerging interesting opportunities in this community paramedic space of uh, paramedics doing things to integrate within the greater health system um, that are worth exploring and understanding better. Uh, but they, ha- they both have to happen. Uh, in order for free hospital care to be successful. And I, I think there's the will to do that. Thank you so much, uh, Dave. Really, really appreciate all your help with the program. And, Cater, you get the last word. Actually, I kind of get the last word, but you get the last substantive word here. Well, I, I just the only thing I'd say to add on to everything that's been said already is this is a wonderful community. It's a community focused on getting better and improvement. And I think it's it's a for IHI, it's a great place for us to be uh, partnered and working in the future. All right. Thanks so much, Kadar. And thank you all participants. You've been fantastic. And thanks for all your resources. Next up on WIHI on August 21st, we're in kind of a summer mode. Then we'll get back in the swing of two shows at least a month in September. August 21st, we'll be looking on excuse me, Preventing Financial Harm to Patients, the Costs of Care Initiative with Neil Shaw and a really fabulous panel. A reminder that you can download the chat, any slides we use for our discussion today. Uh, Look at some of those resources. Uh, There's a lot of information on that. There's in there. 
please thank you for filling out the survey when you log off today. We want to know how this was helpful to you. Check out some comments on our Facebook page. Tweet away. Any questions whatsoever, looking for anything, you can email info at IHI.org. And we have a great crew who helped make this program possible. They include Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. It's my privilege, it really is, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, health and health, most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <music>